Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Kansas City jazz saxophonist Matt Otto. These days, he stays busy in a thriving Kansas City jazz scene, playing at the Blue Room and around town with cats like Bob Bowman and Roger Wilder. He is also busy as an assistant professor of jazz studies at the University of Kansas. Over the course of our interview, he talked about his roots in Los Angeles, spending time in Japan and New York before making Kansas City his eventual home. He is full of interesting stories and insights, so please dig this interview, my friends. Let me go ahead and start off here and just get kind of a snapshot of what has been going on with you lately. Let's see. I played the Blue Room last night with Bob for the hosting the jam session. That was fun. In general, I've been uh, busy recording quite a bit in the last several months and also uh, working at KU um, full-time over there. So I've been busy with that. A lot of, of course, a lot of teaching and, um, and uh, faculty meetings and whatnot. Sure. So that's cool. I really enjoy it and it's a great program. Uh, Dan Gailey is my boss. He's a brilliant arranger and composer. Absolutely. So he's really fun to work with. I've been taking lessons with him and on arranging as well, like when I'm have when I have free time. So let me get back to kind of the beginning of your lineage here. You grew up in LA. Talk to me about growing up in LA and how you got this love of music. I started out when I was really young on piano. I guess I was around four, you know, too young to really play, but I was my parents wanted to inspire me to get into music. And then I switched to saxophone when I was in fourth grade, um, alto, and my grandpa played alto. My uh, He played in dance bands, you know, jazz dance bands. So he gave me his alto, and I played on that for a long time. Um, my mom plays classical viola, and she was a music major but switched to English when she thought the theory was a little too hard for her. And my dad plays banjo, plectrum, um, bluegrass. And they sang a lot. Um, so I, we kind of grew up being musical as a family. We would sing. and um, That was kind of fun when I was younger. Um, and then I just uh, I met a really great teacher in, in junior high. Uh, actually, before that, maybe sixth grade. Guy Don Hawkins is a really well-known teacher in Los Angeles. Um, Orange County. He's taught uh, many local players that came out of that area. Uh, Eric Marienthal, uh, Doug Webb, myself, a bunch of people. Great teacher and just such a great person. He he was the one who made me want to become a professional sax player. So he's still alive and teaches still and plays. He's getting old. I think he's in his late 70s now. I knew I wanted to be a professional or do it for a living when I was in junior high. That's when I was pretty decided that was it. And I wasn't ever, I was never a prodigy or anything. I just had a, I had a strong work ethic, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you got your composition side of what you do and your saxophone side. So I wanted to know who were your, who were your influences on the saxophone? Well, Charlie Parker is my first influence. My teacher, Don, had me learn out of the Omni book, which is just a book of his transcriptions of his solos. Um, and I'd memorize those and play along with the recordings. 
and then he got me into Coltrane. So those were my first two influences, Bird and then Train. And I pretty much stuck stuck with them uh, for all through high school and mostly through probably my, you know, I graduated in 85 from high school and probably didn't start really branching out listening-wise until 88 maybe. Started listening to some of the modern players at the time, like Branford and uh, Michael Brecker, you know, just some of the, mo- the the people who were popular at that time. But really, I'd say my biggest influence was when I was young was Coltrane, Bird, Bird and Coltrane. Right on. And then as I got older, I got really into the older players. Like, I really uh, got into Lester Young. Um when I got probably in my late twenties, I started getting super into Lester and just more, more of the simple melodic improvisers like Hank Mobley, Dexter, guys that are just more vocal, you know. Yeah. Um, and if, I mean, not that Bird and Train aren't vocal, but that they're, you know, I guess they're more on ge- a kind of a genius level. And I started kind of realizing it wasn't really my that wasn't really who I was, so I kind of ended up starting to be more into players who I could relate to more, like emotionally. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. But I still love Trey, and I listen to him every week. I listen to something of him because I just, you know, he's amazing. Absolutely. Um, so, let's talk about compositions. Whose compositions do you enjoy the most? You know, I, I'm a big fan of Bach. I listen to his music more than probably anyone's now. Um, so I'd say that's my biggest influence is studying Bach's music, listening to it and studying it, and, you know, in a very modest way. I just, like, will, I'll look at some of his, uh, like, the his uh, choir, choral works, which are, like, four-part four part pieces that are really, um, for him, pretty easy to digest uh, for me, you know, it's easy for him to write and easy for me to learn from. And then I study um, the uh, Art of the Fugue quite a bit that he, you know, wrote before he died. It's the last piece he wrote. And I uh, studied a bit of the B minor mass. And, you know, and when I say that, I mean, I just get really inside of just a small section of it and really analyze it. I took class and broke counterpoint at Berkeley when I was there, and I got a ton out of that. So most of my, I don't know, my basic craft or skill set comes from studying Bach and then just applying my jazz ear to that basic uh, science of, of composition, how, you know, how to write, uh, the, the, I guess the nuts and bolts of writing, uh, and then kind of filtered through my jazz ear, you know, listening to lots of music that isn't Bach. Would it be safe to assume that Bach is one of the influences that inspires you when you compose, or is there anybody else? Uh, Yeah, he'd be the biggest influence, but yeah, I listen so much to music that I'd say anyone, you know, anyone I listen to becomes um, an influence. I guess you know how it is if you write, any book you read kind of influences how you write in one way or another. Yeah, because after at a certain point you already have enough skill to kind of get something just from listening. Yeah, you know I don't have to necessarily kind of 
transcribe it to get something from it. Absolutely. So, yeah, he'd be, uh, you know, other, I love all of uh, Bird's tunes. I a ton of Monk, so I memorized a lot of Monk's music and Bird's music, the the tunes, you know, their songs. And um, I love, I love their writing. I really love Monk. Um, and study, uh, you know, I guess the things I've memorized uh, to perform as an improviser have become really important for my composition. So, you know, the kind of the group of standards that I've ended up memorizing and playing over and over have kind of trained my ear to hear a certain way. I'm pretty much a tonal composer. You know, I I tend to write in key centers with modulations. I am, I've definitely branched out and written some atonal music and freer music, but when I'm honest and I'm just writing what I hear in my mind, it's pretty tonal, pretty functional harmonically. Right on. Not very uh, complicated, honestly, you know. I yeah. kind of think of it as folk music. L- let me ask you this question. Um, you, One of your groups, you use uh, Shea Estes vocalizing, not singing, oh, yeah. but you use her voice as an instrument. How yeah. do you see that group? What's the inspiration for it, and how are you incorporating Shea into it? So that's a good question. I, I just, uh, we just finished mastering the album. that We did an album, finally. And uh, so it'll be out in a month, uh, hopefully. And, uh, yeah, she's, I just kind of like the sound of voice. Um, you know, the, the fact that even just the sound of the voice kind of draws your ear to it, even without lyrics. Like, if you're listening to opera and you don't know what they're saying. Yeah. So it's very easy for your mind to kind of find it as a focal point. So I really like it as a way of bolstering the melody and drawing a, a listening ear towards the melody, you know, without it necessarily having lyrics. I mean, I would love to write lyrics. I just can't really... It's not my thing. I'm not good at it. I tried it when I was younger. I had a band and did all the original music with lyrics in it. You know, and I listened back to it. It sounded pretty embarrassing. So... <laughs> wasn't my, you know, I would have had to work a lot harder. So I just thought, well, you know what, I don't really need lyrics. It's not, you know, I'm an instrumentalist, so, and there's so many great singers that sing lyrics. There's a guy in uh, San Francisco I like, this guy, Lauren Benedict, and he, he's one of the only singers I know who doesn't ever sing any lyrics, but always sings standards. So, like, you go hear him on a gig, and he, he just scats everything. Uh, it's really amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you this. You came from L.A. Talk to me about the scene in L.A. that you came from. Um, it's great, a great scene. It's really huge, you know. The city's so massive and, and spread out, and so there's tons of work. Uh, there's not quite, you know, it, the work isn't as visible as in some cities. You know, there's not a ton of dedicated jazz clubs there. But there's a ton of work. You just have to live there to kind of know where it is. Lots of, you know, the down at the Union, there's like something like 30 big bands that rehearse like weekly at the Union. It's, it's ridiculous how many players there are and how much music there is. It's just kind of it's not, well, you, you can't really see it from like, if you Google it from here, there's, it doesn't seem like there's much going on other than the main big venues, you know. 
Yeah. Um, but the scene's great, and there's a ton of great players, lots of um, inspiring composers. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I would have stayed there had my wife not gotten a job here. Right. Um, I'm really glad we ended up here because I, I really love it. Well, you spent five years in Japan, seven years in New York City, and you said that a job brought brought you to Kansas City. So let me ask you this: What do you What did you anticipate finding in Kansas City, and how does it compare to what you found here? Well, you know, I honestly didn't know at first what to think. I was a little intimidated uh, moving to the Midwest from the coast, you know um because I had never been and I thought it would be um I didn't think there'd be a strong cultural a culture element um which I was mistaken of course uh I knew that you know Charlie Parker and Lester Young and Daisy uh were here in the past and so it had a great tradition but you know that doesn't necessarily last but uh when I came and started kind of looking on the internet before I came. It seemed like there was a lot of musicians and a really great sax player from here, Gary Foster. It's a friend of mine in Los Angeles and he was kind enough to write a a letter uh, to the local Kansas City musicians that he knew that he still had uh, contacts with and he sent an email on my behalf to help me get established, which was really great. So, you know, he reached out to Bob Bowman and Danny Ambry and some of the older players. And so when I came at Gerald's Space, they kind of uh, helped me get started. So it was really helpful. Um, And I was really amazed by the level of uh, musicianship. And I heard a bunch of great bands when I came to town. Uh, Jeff Harshbarger had a group I heard. In fact, the first band I heard was the band I hired for my group. So it was Jeff and Mike Warren and uh, Gerald Dunn. Uh, they were playing, uh, hosting the session at the Blue Room, and I thought, man, this band sounds great. And I just basically took that band and uh, wrote for it, started writing music for it, and then added TJ as I needed chords later on. But first, it was this quartet with. Me and Gerald, so. So how would you compare both the scenes, the L.A. scene to Kansas City? I guess I'd say the the, uh, the Kansas City scene is much more intimate. There's a lot more, uh, you know, people are a lot closer here. Like, we all know each other here. It seems smaller and tighter. And so I think it's healthier in that regard. It's more, uh, it feels more like a community in in. Los Angeles is so spread out, you get more clicks. You know, it's a good community. It's just that you tend to fall into one group, just I think because of the how big the city is. So yeah, um, I like it here better. It's a little more manageable, and you, you seem, it seems like you know everyone, and you get more support, and uh, that sort of thing here. I feel. I felt more uh, happier here and, and more um, able to pursue my, uh, the, you know, compose things I want to compose and 
kind of pursue my music without being uh, sidetracked by just the, for one thing, the, the need to make a living is so oppressive in Los Angeles. It's very expensive. Um, gigs don't even pay as well as they do here, and the cost of living is, you know, maybe three times more. So it, it was pretty hard to be focused as an artist all the time when you're also just trying to pay the bills. So, I, you know, I was doing a lot of gigs that I wouldn't want to do if I had the choice. Absolutely. Money. So I, I have artistic freedom here, much more, to a large extent. Um, and so I've been much happier. Right on. Let me ask you about the music, the talent, the music, and the musicians. What's the difference between L.A. and Kansas City? The sound we're putting out, the musicians, and kind of the overall talent level between both the cities. Yeah, I think the the main difference is the, just the quantity. You know, I wouldn't say the quality. There, there's great players here and obviously great players in L.A. That's, you know, the center of the film industry, so you get some unbelievable musicians living there and in startling numbers. I mean, I knew my list of dubs for sax players was, I mean, probably close to 100, you know, just ridiculous amount of great players. But uh, here we have great players. It's just not in the quantities, you know. And I think that the cool thing about that is that people, it's easier to kind of, I feel like, have an individual or distinguishable voice here because it's smaller and you, I mean, you tend to in Los Angeles you can tend to start uh, get this phenomenon where you're doing so much work so much diverse work that it kind of obliterates your personal voice or it can you know there's some amazing voices there on every instrument but it's uh, you know if you're doing all the different kinds of musical work you can do every week after 20 years of that, it's like jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none sort of thing, where you don't have an artistic voice because you haven't had time to develop it. So yeah. I think in Kansas City, we really have the luxury to be able to really work on what we want to work on if we choose to. And in yeah. L.A., we have, there was tons of guys like that, but you had to really work. To, you had to kind of be aware of that and, and turn stuff down and, tighten the belt and like really try to stay focused on your art more uh, deliberately. Whereas here, I feel like you can kind of find your voice without having to dedicate so much uh, quality, focused time doing it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So how would you compare the coverage of the jazz scene in Kansas City versus L.A. between radio and print and all of the, you know, all of the different outlets? Well, you know, I'm, I'm much happier with it here because the artists here have access to the media. Um, you know, I can I can call any number of the guys at KKFI and say, hey, you know, I got a CD coming out. Uh, would would it be okay if I came on and promoted it a little bit? And it, it, without an exception, all of them would say yes. What day works for you? You know, whereas in LA, it's like pulling teeth trying to get certainly any radio coverage. And, and, you know, they don't even have much of a jazz station left. I think Long Beach State still has something. But, um, uh, what was it, K? And the old, the old jazz station there went out, just died, you know? Uh, yeah. 
but you know the other thing is uh, it's 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 hard uh, getting coverage there. Honestly, it's it's not impossible, and I I certainly got my fair share, but it's it just took a lot more effort. It wasn't like here it's more like a a smaller community. People are really supportive, and they're not inundated with as well. The writers aren't inundated with a thousand requests, you know. So it's a little yeah. bit less less of a struggle for the writers as well. Like a brick wall who writes out in LA, he would cover gigs, but you know, to send him ten emails, and then he'd finally go, "Yeah, man, sorry, I've been busy," and you know, or uh, Scott Yano, um, guys are great. They're great guys. It's just they're so busy. There's so many players trying to get a little, you know, a plug in about their gig or what whatnot. So. Absolutely. I think it's a lot, a lot easier for both the media, the people working uh, to support the jazz and the musicians as well. I think it's a lot more realistic here. What do you see as your own future in the in, in the jazz world? I, I guess you know I, I'm not sure. I I feel like for me I, I just you know I just kind of work on music every day. You know I, I practice and write and listen I'm, and just into music every day it's kind of like what I do so I'm not I'm not sure I have any uh although I have goals like you know finish this CD project or write a P you know do a big man arrangement for this concert but I, I don't really have uh I guess when I was younger I kind of had some envision that maybe you know I had more of a, a feeling for what what should happen for an artist, whereas now I don't really have any preconceptions about it. I feel like I'm doing exactly what I want to do. I I write and play with players I like playing with, and I, I'm really I'm happy with how things are. So I'm not really I don't see anything different for me in the future. I just see more of the same, like re- writing, re- recording, and performing. Um, just until I'm done, you know, until I pass on, but. Um, that's kind of where how I think of it, I guess. Let me ask you this: What do you see as the future of the Kansas City jazz scene? Well, I think it's getting better. I mean, you know, I can't really predict what will happen, um, but I I suspect it will just keep getting better. It's gotten better since I've moved here. More player, heavier, better players have moved to town and are staying. Some of the younger players from. KU and from UMKC are staying in town instead of leaving. You know, there was a time when, from what I've heard, when everyone kind of left and went to New York, you know, um, and I feel like that's not as much the case anymore. Because the scene's healthy enough and creative enough to keep the younger generation of players in town, which is super important because, you know, they, they're for sure the driving force of art, you know, the younger generation is really I feel like the you know they've really it's super important that they stay here and kind of uh, I don't know they just make the, the the culture really healthy and help the I you know love playing with younger players the energy they bring and the the kind of fr- uh, emotional freedom they bring to the bandstand and uh, creative energy they're not limited by um, years of 
I don't know. You know, you, as you get older, you, you definitely, I feel as a musician, you can, you can tend to get very refined, and but sometimes you lose some of that raw passion and energy that younger players seem to always have or often have. So I really like playing with the younger players, and I think the scene is getting better because it's keeping those players in town, you know, instead of having them move to New York or to a bigger city like L.A. or Chicago or something. Sure. So let's talk about jazz as a big organism. What do you see as the continuing growth of jazz as as a medium? Um, well, I feel like there's some. I think uh, Eddie Moore posted something today on on Ellington, where a quote from Ellington, where Ellington said, like back in the 30s or something, he said, you know, the the term he wasn't a fan of the term jazz, and that he liked to think of it as uh, creative. Uh, music that reflects freedom and uh, expression, and I thought that was a really accurate, you know, understanding. Um, and of course, I'm not debating the term jazz really, but just that I think creative music that focuses on improvisation and self-expression, and uh, uh, you know, that reflects society in some regard, is always going to be relevant and 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 it's always going to thrive. I mean, you know, improvising is kind of partly human nature, you know, uh, the adapting in the moment to stimulus. And so I think music and art that reflects that will always be really uh, healthy. I always think it'll be around. I don't know that it's necessarily going to generate a ton of money for anyone, um, but, you know, some of the best things don't. Um yeah. But I think it's always going to be a relevant part of culture and, and something that's uniquely human and uniquely, um, you know, just uh, yeah, uniquely human, I guess I'd say, and and uh, defines us like language does, you know, uh, makes us different. So I kind of think of it that way. I, I feel like it'll always be a strong force and that, it, that, that whether or not, it, you know, capitalism embraces it, uh in any given time period will just, who knows, um, you know, if it makes money or not, I, I don't think is really the relevant issue. Of course, that will help in terms of people having the economic support they need to do what they want to do artistically. That's always, but that's been an ongoing struggle, I think, for artists since the beginning of society, you know, organized society. I, I just think, like, that's always an ongoing thing, right? How do, how do artists support their art? And yeah, still eat yeah so yeah absolutely yes it's kind of nothing new probably um but you know i think that i think jazz is stronger so-called jazz is stronger than it's ever been simply by virtue of the fact that there's more people playing it than there ever has been you know um more musicians it's brought broadly every university in the country has a jazz program practically yeah. whereas you know 30 years ago, that would be not the case at all. You yeah. know, in fact, it, even at KU, where I'm teaching, there was a time when they, you weren't allowed, if they heard you, if the dean heard you practicing jazz, he would get mad at you. And, you know, you, it was like not cool, basically, to, to even study jazz. So, yeah. you know, it's really changed. Um, Absolutely. So, let me ask you this. Who do you admire what jazz musicians, both locally and nationally, do you admire? Uh, let's see. Uh, you know, I, I guess 
admire I admire a lot of musicians, um, even the ones that I'm not entirely, uh, you know, I'm not entirely uh, interested in listening to their music. I feel like people who have dedicated their lives to this art, I admire that, the dedication that it takes, because it is in the face of, uh, you know, economic difficulty in a sense. You know, it's very few people are making a lot of money playing jazz. You know, maybe there's a few Herbie Hancocks out there, but basically even the guys that are real popular young players in New York, they're still struggling and touring all year round and like, um, you know, maybe more successful financially than I am, but it's not huge. It's still, you know, so I really respect anyone who's kind of dedicated their life to the art, even if I don't necessarily enjoy what they're producing on a personal level. It's yeah. not really for me to say, you know. Um, and I, so I kind of feel like anyone who's seen some success and has managed to maintain um, their their direction or their um, commitment to it, I, I really respect that. People I really just love the music of, you know, I so many, you know, so many players, the older generation um, of guys are all, you know, my favorite. My favorites are basically the older players are always my favorite because they're just more experienced and they have a deeper, um, you know, everything they play comes from a deeper place, more experience, more nuance. Um, so I like I like the older players, and and I and I I like the younger players too because a lot of guys have that. Um, like I was saying earlier, kind of they have a, this passion for the music that is really refreshing and, and yeah. fearlessness, which I love to hear. So it's pretty broad. I mean, I, I really like so many players. I think in general, I love what's happened in New York. I think New York's producing so much great music. Um, so I look there oftentimes. I look, I try to see who the young players are who are becoming more recognized in New York. And then the older players who've been there a long time who are continually putting out albums. I just, Last week, listened to a new album that Ben Monder put out on ECM with um, Pete Randy, who's from originally from uh, Missouri, on synthesis like a synth, um, and Paul Motion. It was one of the last recordings Paul Motion did before he died. And then Andrew Cyril's on the second half of the album because after uh, Paul died, they still hadn't finished the recording. So it's really amazing. Uh, just trio, really ambient. There's no groove per se it's just like kind of ambient textural music um and so that's like an example of you know kind of some of two older players like andrew cyril and, and paul motion uh and then two players who are i guess middle you know in their middle age ben's in his 50s pete's in his he's younger than me i think he's in his early 40s or late 30s even so it's like a really good example of, of kind of music that i like to listen yeah. to. Uh, let me ask you this. I had heard that you maybe had a hand or wrist injury. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Is it is that getting better? What's uh, is it affecting your play or? Yeah, it's not great. I've it, I had injured it in 1990, so I got um really bad carpal tunnel syndrome in 1990 to where I couldn't open my hand. My hand was like stuck in a closed fist. Um, it was from practicing a lot. I used to practice all day, eight yeah. eight hours, between six to eight hours for three years in a row. And um, 
a day, each day, and I finally just got carpal tunnel from it. But it's probably a combination of poor, poor technique and and too hard, hard a spring action on my tenor at the time. And uh, basically, since that time, I've been fighting ongoing symptoms and, and problems with my hands, most of my left hand. So, you know, I can play fairly well in spite of it, but it's definitely my technique is probably half of what it used to be and uh, continually is an issue. So my hand is super sore today because I played last night. So anytime I play, and when I play particularly hard, it's it's worse. So last night I was playing kind of hard because it was with Todd Strait and Roger and Bob and Danny, and those guys are all such amazing musicians, you know. So I was really trying to play as well as I could with as much kind of energy and passion as I could muster. And as a result, that sometimes is harder on my hand because I play with a little more tension, which I wish I didn't do. But, you know, it's hard hard to break old habits. So, so you mentioned you're an assistant professor of jazz studies at KU. Talk, yeah. do, you really, do you enjoy that gig? I do. I love teaching. That's like, in some ways, it's like more of a calling for me than um, playing. Like, I'm not, I've never been a prodigy or, you know, exceptional natural talent in music. I've just been kind of work ethic based, you know, just working hard. Uh, whereas in teaching, I feel like I actually have a natural talent for teaching. My um, my parents divorced and remarried when I was five, and all four of my, you know, both my step-parents and both my parents are teachers. And um, I just grew up being around that culture and talking about methodology for teaching and approaches to teaching and learning approaches, learning styles. And um so I just I by the time I started teaching I was already really kind of just naturally good at it. And um I mean not that I can connect with every student, but I certainly try to and I have a, a pretty good success rate um for students who are at least you know, open to being taught. You know, that's always I guess. Would you say that this is a new stage in your career by helping to teach the next generation? Um, not not so much in that I've been teaching a long time, so I started teaching in my early twenties. Um and then I did have I have a successful blog um with over a million hits and through that blog I've taught hundreds of people through Skype. So before I accepted the KU position, I was teaching up to thirty students a week on Skype for years. And um that was generating a ton of uh teaching experience for me as well as a comfortable income teaching but um that uh that was kind of before I did this university gig and I was doing some adjunct teaching um and subbing at various schools for the years before in through my, in my 20s and 30s and 40s I'm 49 now so so it was I wouldn't say it's new in that it, I I've taught a long time but it is new it's my first full-time position so it's the first time I've ever had to go to faculty meetings and like be part of the organization of uh, at, in at a university level where I'm trying to help organize how you know like what classes we're going to teach designing classes curriculum and doing and working more underneath the behind the curtain you know um uh, helping fundraise, trying to recruit, you know, stuff that you don't really think about when you're just teaching private lessons. Since you're a teacher, tell me who has probably taught you the most about jazz. Well, I would say, you know, my first teacher, Don Hawkins, I mentioned him again, He's he was really the person who got me to want to be a professional 
and be a saxophone player and be a jazz musician. And then uh, Gar- George Garzon, I studied with in uh, Berkeley in Boston. Uh, he was one of my main teachers, also a similar type of person, just like really loves music, loves playing, loves the community that, you know, that's jazz and um, taught me kind of how to enjoy improvising. And he's a real improviser, doesn't like to play things by rote. He really likes to strive to make up new, you know, very spontaneous players. So I learned a lot from him. He's a great teacher as well as player. And then the main people I've learned from are just the actual players, you know, transcribing um, them, you know, writing, learning their solos or learning phrases they played. So kind of just studying through listening and, and copying and assimilating, uh, you know, other other people's material. That's probably what has taught me the most. But yeah. the inspiration is so important, you know, and you get that. I get that a lot from teachers. I still study, you know, studying um, arranging with Dan Gailey and also with Alan Ferber, who got a Grammy nomination last year for his new big band album. I study with him over Skype. And then I take uh, private lessons for, on improvisation and performance with Julian Lodge, who's a great guitar player out of New York who's much younger than me, but a phenomenal uh, performer. So, I, you know, I try to constantly be also studying as well as teaching because I feel like that's, that's you know, keeps you inspired and keeps you learning. And if you're always learning, you, you tend to be a better teacher because you're, you're actually sharing with the students. You're not just kind of lecturing. You're yeah. kind of exploring together. So, Absolutely. So as someone that's dedicated their life to jazz, why do you love jazz? Um, I think I like it because it's become uh, uh, such a habit for me that it's almost like, a. in a sense, if I don't play and work on music every day, I feel like there's something missing or something's wrong. Um, so I, I'm kind of compelled to do it just through, I guess, through years of doing it from discipline. I kind of had, you know, a, a strong sense of discipline when I was younger, which now I don't really need to, to have anymore. I mean, I, I what I mean is that now it's I don't feel like it's discipline. I used to set the timer and be like, I'm going to practice six hours today, regardless, you know, of inspiration. Now I just, I'm inspired every day. I think I, I did it... Uh, through discipline for a long time, and then over time it, it became natural, and now I just love. Now it's more I'm trying to get myself not to practice. You know, yeah, it hurts my hand. Yeah, but yeah, I, I really, uh, I love it. You know, it's a great, it's a great language um, for for communicating to yourself and learning about yourself, and then it's a great language for communicating and playing with others. Um, so it's a nice it's a nice way to to hang out with people, you know. Yeah. Playing. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd rather be playing with people than almost anything. So. Right on. Final question I want to ask is this: Everybody has their perception of who you are. Your family does. Your friends do. Those that you perform for. But who do you think you are? I'd say just I kind of just I do uh, identify myself as a musician and a composer. And so I, I think of myself that way, and as a teacher, those kind of three things kind of define define the majority of my action in a day. You know, I play and I perform, and I teach, and I write. So that's pretty much how I identify myself. Um, 
I mean, to what extent that's like relevant is, I guess, up to for history to decide. But that's what I do each day. So I kind of think of myself that way. That's how I describe myself. Yeah, right on. Hey, Matt, thank you for taking some time to talk with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Joe. Thanks for calling me. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players doing that jazz these days around Kansas City and the world. And thanks to Matt for his contribution to the Kansas City scene and giving the education to future generations. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.